Dr. Stain, we're live and it is great to have you here. Um, we have known each other in the same functional circles for a while, but uh, recently, I think it was last year, we had coffee and I just loved mm -hmm. getting to know you and what you're doing and uh, so much alignment with functional medicine. You're a cardiologist trained and I will share your official bio. Um, just a little housekeeping for those of you watching and listening. This will be recorded. You can uh, watch it later if you don't catch it all. Um, it'll be here on Facebook uh, Live, and it will also be on my YouTube channel, which is just under my name, Jill Carnahan, so you can find us there. Um, so, And you can feel free to share this if you find it interesting with your friends and family. So I want to introduce my friend, Dr. Abid Hussain. He's an established cardiologist in the conventional healthcare system. He, but, but he realized, like we all do, the limitations of providing highly impactful preventative care. So he decided um, to educate himself in functional medicine and cutting edge research of the biotechnologies of anti-aging. So if you stay tuned today, we're gonna to talk about some really cutting edge things that we're doing in not only internal medicine, but cardiology and pretty much all realms. Um, and what I love is just like you, Dr. Hussain, you're trained in cardiology, so you obviously have this really wonderful specialty, but this mm -hmm. functional realm applies to all of our patients, no matter if they have heart issues or not. So it'll be interesting to, to dive into there. Um, yeah, he's among the revolutionary few who are changing the way cardiovascular disease is addressed. And you know, I always find um, it's so fun to talk to specialists that are functional trained because I, a lot of us are um, internal medicine, family medicine background. But when we find a colleague like you who's had the extra training, rheumatology, cardiology, gastroenterology, it's really, really uh, special because you've got all this great conventional wisdom. Um, and I always feel like it's we're adding to our toolbox, right? Like for me, I still mm -hmm. have a great conventional doctor. I still wanna make a great differential diagnosis, use all the great tools we have. But what we have now is we have a bigger toolbox with more things to use at the disposal of our patients. Um, he's triple board certified and he's an accomplished painter, mixed martial artist, and he has so many um, cool assets to his life. So thank you again for joining us. I'm so glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a real honor to be here. Yeah, so what I always like to start with is a little bit about your story because we all have kind mm -hmm. of a way that we traveled into medicine. And how did you get interested first in just medicine then cardiology? And then how did you find your way to functional medicine? Well, my, my journey has always had this uh, inter, intertwined uh, path with the arts. So when I was in, in college, I was, uh, I, it, was, um, it, it was easier for me to, to, to sort of go into the, uh, into the, um, the medical profession as my father was, was, a, was a physician and my brother also, but I really wanted to do the arts. And uh, I was considering do, being a, a comic book illustrator. And, uh, and then I took a gross anatomy class. And then all of a sudden, something just went off in my head that made me really interested. And um, I thought, all right, this is, this is something that I really love doing. And at the same time, you know, satisfies a lot, of, uh, a lot of other responsibilities in my life. So it just, uh, it, was, it was a great fit. And then 20 years later, I was, you know, in fellowship and, uh, and finishing that up and, and uh, you know, got my training in cardiology and starting to practice. I love that. And what I love is what I really learned, you know, in medicine, it's a very analytical systemic mm -hmm. field and very left brained, but you're an artist and you're an artist at heart. And I feel like I have the same kind of bent as far as I'm actually an intuitive 
um, you know, a lot of more creative pieces mm -hmm. there. And those combine so beautifully because that yeah. medicine at the root there, it's problem solving. So we use that mm -hmm. left brain analytical part, but honestly, it's creative problem solving because you have to really take a whole different approach to this to really understand mm -hmm. the complexities. So I bet you find that your artist background brings a whole different level of uh, skill to your cardiology and your integrative and anti-aging practice. Yeah, it does. It, it, instead of it being protocol-based, which is what a lot of conventional medicine has become, it really uh, brings the artistry back into it. And I think that's one of the things that functional medicine really has provided. You know, there's, a, there's an element of artistry to it. Every person is different every, and every treatment is individualized. And so there's also a trial and error period. And that requires being able to understand and read what people are telling us uh, and their symptoms and, and taking, knowing what to take uh, as a priority and what not to. So, you know, those are all, it, it's, uh, it, it brings the artistry back into it for sure. Yeah, I've really found that because I remember in medical school, like being so ashamed of my creativity and intuition because that wasn't scientific, mm -hmm. right? So I really learned to kind of push that aside. We can't trust our gut. And yeah. now the last decade in practice, I feel like that intuition and, and there's science to back this, but mm -hmm. that intuitive sense of, of kind of the gestalt of where to go with a patient as you listen to their story you know, it's right on. And it's almost 100% of the time mm -hmm. I'm really in touch with that. Or even the sense of like, oh, we're missing something or I need to know more yeah. direction, right? And I'm sure you navigate that way too. Mm -hmm. But as I've actually pulled back in the intuitive right brain part of myself, I feel like I'm a much, much better practitioner. And I yeah. get, you know, a, a bigger, a, and even the sense of how they're feeling and, and uh, well, what was that? What was the significance of that event in your life? And then you find out, well, that was a mm -hmm. time there home flooded and then there was water damage and then they had, yeah. you know, whatever kinds of things that, um, so we're listening. Um, so then you cardiology, conventional cardiology yeah. um, and triple board certified. Tell me just a little bit more about that. What's your board certifications in? Well, I, there's internal medicine and cardiology. Those two, they go hand in hand. We have to go through internal medicine before we can finish cardiology. So those are two. And then there's my functional medicine board certification. Um, I didn't get that until after, I'd say about 10 years of practicing, you know, I uh, was practicing in Las Vegas and, um, and that's probably one of the epicenters of cardiovascular disease in the country because you have healthy, unhealthy lifestyles, uh, people getting cardiovascular disease at a young age. And then you have a lot of retirees that already have cardiovascular disease. So it's a bit of a, you know, a, a, a you know, heart sandwich over there. So it was busy yeah. and, uh, and I got burned out after about eight years. Uh, and it, there was a, you know, there was a, a, a feeling of just sort of uh, fixing the, the symptom and, you know, they, we were putting in stents, they were, you know, we were giving people statins and, and it felt, you know, they, they were getting better, but they weren't really getting the outcomes that I wanted. And, uh, you know, that combined with just a huge workload, it, you know, I got burned out and I decided to take a sabbatical and, um, you know, I continued to work per diem, but I took a majority of my time off and went and was called back to the arts. And I went to do uh, three years of studying with a master painter in Santa Fe. And I also did some traveling internationally to different places to study, but I did that for three to four years and um, was just, you know, continuing to practice medicine to continue my, uh, to my keep my skills relevant. 
Uh, and then it was after that I, I had, you know, I created this sense of satisfaction in one part of my life and medicine still wasn't really satisfying me in the way that it had when I first encountered it when I was young. Um, and uh, I was searching around for different options and uh, that's when I ran into functional medicine. And uh, that's when it, that's what pinged me. It, it really uh, brought back a lot of interest and it brought back this sense of continuing learning back in my life. Like now I really enjoy and, and, and search for the time to continue to do the research. Whereas before it was more of an obligation. Yes. Oh gosh. There's so many pieces I want to talk to you about in your story <laughs> because already, so first of all, you kind of went back into creativity, still kept your license in the temporary kind of you work up to keep that. I know how that goes. But what was interesting is I bet that getting back into the creative really enhanced when you got back into medicine, functional medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say? What, uh, first of all, I want to say when I first sat down to lunch with you last year, I remember hearing about your artist background, seeing some of your art, you are Mm -hmm. amazingly talented. Like I love what you've done. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was so impressive because so often you have a very analytical left brain engineer, doctor, um, Mm -hmm. accountant, great right but they don't have the breadth or the depth of talent and and again like we talked about the beginning i think it's actually the heart of the intuitive artist that really brings that ability to see things at a different level with our patients and actually find answers to very complex problems because they aren't i always think of it as we have a limited ability to process data in our analytical Mm -hmm. mind but we have an unlimited uh, ability to process data with our subconscious right Mm -hmm. so we can take in a lot more data points and process it at that level what did going back to the arts and then coming back to medicine what did that bring um different for you to medicine that you maybe didn't have as much before? Was there anything that that changed the way you practiced? It, uh, yeah, it did. It, it, it just it, touching on what you were saying, it was, there was a lot of integration of data. It was interesting. It, you know, uh, the part, the type of painting that I do is painting from life and life, especially visual data has a, tr- there's a tremendous amount of information we're taking in visually. And most of it is not, we're not aware of most of it. Most of it is subconscious. And there is a, an element of not, of being able to understand what, we're, what I'm seeing and then recreate it on a canvas. And so by going through that process of recreating it, it helps me to really formulate and understand what it is that I'm seeing on a really fundamental level. So when I start to see after doing that, when I, now I you apply that to other areas. So whether it's movement in my exercises or in, you know, in studying, in, in uh, studying clinical trials or practicing medicine, there's an element of try of taking all this volumes of information mm-hmm. and, and taking it and, and filtering it down, distilling it to the, the important parts that I need to use to organize the, the picture I'm putting together. You have just so eloquently talked about how we, how functional medicine works best because it really is, it's um, observation and attention to detail, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like you're just watching and you're watching when they flinch when you talk about a certain event in their life or you watch mm-hmm. when they, you know, pause and they're having trouble getting the words out about something. You're like, there's something there. But yeah. it's all those details that if we're going at the fast analytical pace, we might miss. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, patients know uh, what they need if we listen carefully enough don't they usually kind of tell us what direction to go because yeah they're the author and they're the you know most important part of their story well i mm-hmm. love that and then you you mentioned the functional medicine 
most people I've talked to, including myself, and it sounds like you, when we really understand and find functional medicine, there's kind of an aha, because the mm -hmm. reason we really went into fun into medicine in general is to solve problems, help people heal, and really yeah. understand root cause. Did you have that kind of aha when you discovered a functional medicine? Like, this is what I've been looking for? Yeah, it, it did. It's, it was... Um... I had the aha when I when um, I was doing when I was studying the functional medicine. And I realized it was making me a better physician overall because it was complementing both internal medicine and cardiology, and uh, and and it continues to do so. The more I study, and the more I study, the more impactful things I learn. The more I keep having, you know, these aha moments just keep getting keep coming, and they keep getting bigger and bigger. It's not like it just happened once, you know. Right. They, right. Yeah. It's like I've tapped into a vein and now all of a sudden I say, I just keep following that back and it's, it's, it, make, it becomes more exciting. Yeah. And, and like you said, the joy comes back because we actually went into medicine to help solve problems, help people yeah. heal versus just, there's nothing wrong with drugs and surgery. I prescribe mm -hmm. them frequently, but yeah. if that's the end point all the time when there's no actually solution-based medicine, it gets to be a little bit um, discour discouraging really for what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, let's talk about some of the cutting edge things you're seeing. I know you do a lot of anti-aging, so you deal with mm -hmm. cardiology patients, but you're also looking at people like a lot of our listeners who just want better performance, whether it's brain, physical mm -hmm. health, um, optimal performance in sports and athletics. I'm yeah. assuming you see quite a few athletes too. I do. Yeah, yeah I take care of a lot of athletes. Um, that, and that's been where uh, they're, they're, I, I enjoy taking care of athletes, and that's been where I started uh, a lot of my practice um, and, a, and a lot of uh, harm, bioidentical hormone replacement. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a rewarding way to help people because a lot of, the, a lot of athletes generally, generally are pretty healthy and uh, we don't have too much to tackle so we can add on to what they're doing and they have some sort of uh, practices that are, that are, you know, some sort of, um, yeah, some sort of practice and uh, consistency with what they're doing. Um, the but what's what's interesting is after working with those people and and de deciding that all right I'm, I'm I'm prescribing testosterone I'm prescribing estrogen progesterone I've really got to know the nuts and bolts of what these are doing and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, of myth about testosterone out there what it does what it doesn't do does it help the cardiovascular system it doesn't it same thing with estrogen there's these trials that are from 30 years ago that say we shouldn't be taking oral est you know uh, hormone replacement and then we have trials that say we do so it, it became i was compelled to say all right i'm prescribing this and i'm a specialist in this in this arena i have to know the nuts and bolts of what's going on and really find out definitively for myself what it is and so that has led into a really a real uh a real kind of goldmine in understanding what hormones can do for our cardiovascular health and how they're being underutilized. Uh, so I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I do the same. I think you probably even more to an extent um, use them and I, I feel the same way. Like they are powerful when used mm -hmm. appropriately. Yeah. And as long as we know those guidelines. So let's talk about a typical, say, you know, 55 year old woman with no history mm -hmm. of breast cancer, no high risk, just going through menopause, yeah. um, starting to have menopausal symptoms, worried about her heart health. How would you counsel her and would you consider estrogen, testosterone, progesterone? Mm -hmm. Um, what, how would you look at that kind of a case? And then I want to talk about a man too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, so a woman coming in with, uh, you know, menopausal symptoms, premenopausal leading up to, or even in, in full-blown menopause, we, we, I would start by doing, you know, a full blood panel 
and, uh, and, and that would include thyroid also because the thyroid is just as important in cardiovascular health. Um, and I, that's what I do for most of my patients, but actually all of them. I start with at least a sex hormone panel and a thyroid panel. And, um, you know, assuming that their numbers would come back consistent with what we expect, if they're having symptoms of menopause and their progesterone is low and their testosterone, if their progesterone and estrogen are low, as is their testosterone. So, um, and there's a, a lot of data to support not just replacing the, uh, the three hormones, but replacing them up to physiologic levels. Um, I have I've started using um, uh, topical estrogen in the beginning, um, and uh, as we were, as we were trained in uh, in A4M, and then a lot of the research that I'm looking into recently is saying that oral estradiol is safe. Oral estradiol is is probably more powerful and allows for better delivery as well as easier testing. So I've shifted to oral estradiol uh, and and then oral progesterone. Uh, these are all bioidentical. Yep. And that's a very important point because all of the old studies, and this is where things have gotten confounded, is they're using uh, synthetic estrogen or estrone, or they're using equine estrogen, which is ridiculous. We're talking about, you know, horse estrogen for women, it's, you know, and then synthetics, which have a longer half-life, and they're also stronger when they bind the receptors. So naturally, it's going to cause an abnormal reaction or side effect. But if we use bioidentical estrogen, our bodies can manage the half-life. They can manage the, the lifespan of these and then use some sort of feedback mechanism to, to use it appropriately. Uh, same thing goes with progesterone. And then often under-recognized is testosterone for women. It's so important. You know, it's a part of their lean body mass. And lean body mass is important for maintaining uh, cardiovascular health in the sense of insulin sensitivity, um, and then vascular health, things like that. So, so to, not only that, but then recovery, you know, we, we talked about muscle mass briefly, and then libido, important. So bone health. So I, I usually, you know, I give all three to my patients, but I don't often give straight testosterone to women. I give DHEA, huh? which is well converted to testosterone. Yes, yes. I love that overview because people are so afraid. And of mm -hmm. course, we do this with informed consent with the patient, yeah. you know, understanding of what, because there's always some risk with everything we do. Mm -hmm. But I, I agree with you 100%. And what I've really found as I look at the research, the surprising thing in the last maybe five years is the data on testosterone and autoimmunity and why mm -hmm. women get um, autoimmune at least four or five times that of men. Testosterone is one of the factors. And I've actually used that, especially with clear serum levels that are basically undetectable in women mm -hmm. to start to reverse autoimmunity with a good, you know, we're dealing with the gut, we're dealing with all the other functions and pieces, but I've seen testosterone be a key component in women mm -hmm. in helping to reverse autoimmunity. So I couldn't yeah. agree more. Um, and like you said, I love DHA once in a while, if they're really pushing stress hormones and the cortisol mm -hmm. pathway, they're converting that to cortisol or they'll have breakouts or they'll have some conversion issues. And I'm mm -hmm. assuming like in the blood work, you're checking free and total testosterone, DHEAS, yeah. and then maybe even DHT to make sure that they're not having male mm -hmm. pattern bald baldness or any of those kinds sure, of things. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I do that, especially for the men, the DHT is, I mean, of course women, yeah, hair for both. Yeah. I check DHT and all of them. Oh, so, so let's talk about the men then, because clearly mm -hmm. the um, similar pathway, uh, but what do you look for in men? And are you looking for estrogen to make sure it doesn't go too high? Tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about the typical man. 
Yeah. So, so man, in, in, with a similar age, you know, I'll, I'll do the same panel and, and I'm checking the, the same, the same markers. Um, for them, it's, you know, primarily they're concerned about uh, testosterone and, and rightfully so I'll check the free and total testosterone. And if their numbers are low, meaning below three, around 350, depending on the lab, uh, then that means they meet criteria to start right, you know, right away without even worrying about their symptoms. But if they're within low normal, like below 500, and they have symptoms, then I will start them also on, on anyway, because um, that that also meets criteria as long as you have symptoms. So um, starting them on testosterone, there's and when when starting testosterone, I prefer to start them on. Uh, not only this is an injectable because it's the most effective way to, to give it is unfortunately through injections. Once you get used to it, it's not a big deal. Uh, once a week is what I prefer. And then I add uh, another agent with, to help stimulate the body to make its own testosterone. So what ends up happening is if we give testosterone, it's going to, it's going to suppress the, our body's capacity or desire to make testosterone because if it's already there, why do we need to make it? So what we want to do is what I want to do is I want to give them something that will stimulate the brain to send the neural hormone to create a little more testosterone. The reason for that is that we don't suppress the ability for the, the testes to make testosterone overall, because if you do that for years at a time, then restarting your, your, your ability to make testosterone can be difficult. So so not only it, so that helps to boost the testosterone a little bit and keep your physiology working the way it's supposed to. Yeah, and clearly with, with both of these situations, there's a clear heart benefit, right? Can you tell yes. us a little bit about like for a woman optimizing hormones? And mm -hmm. is there any cut off in age? Like should we be concerned after 70 or after 65 or after? What's kind of your threshold for men or women and hormones? And is there a concern with informed consent? What, what would you take us with that? Yeah, um, well, the um let me let me finish with men and then i'll take you to that yeah. so finishing you know the, the second part of the men is uh, the estrogen now i don't uh, i will estrogen and progesterone i will replace their estrogen and progesterone if it's low um oftentimes giving testosterone at, because it gets converted to estrogen means that we don't have to do that but that's where their cholesterol panel comes in ah. i will check their cholesterol panel and if they have they have uh high LDLs, or I also check inflammatory markers. If they have markers that look for oxidized LDL, uh, you know, F, uh, F2 isoprostane or uh, elevated LP little a, these are all extra markers. These are markers that look at uh, bad plaque being created in your arteries. Uh, and I look at others too. If those are elevated, then we need to act on their cholesterol aggressively. And that means you know, if they're open to it, because sometimes the discussion of starting estrogen for men is not something they want to hear. But when they start it, there is great data to show that the estrogen actually helps improve your HDLs, lower your LDLs, and then improve what's called a cholesterol efflux, which is the ability for our body to pull cholesterol out and then get, get rid of it. So, so uh, and then progesterone, helps it'll help them sleep you know if their sleep is off you know it helps everybody sleep so why not give it to men also so yeah, there, there is that discussion. GABA I was just going to mention for people listening that makes GABA your progesterone so the GABA is like the same thing as an alcohol or in benzodiazepines but naturally you make this GABA when you take progesterone orally which is mm -hmm. amazing for sleep so go ahead yeah. sorry 
So I'll, so I'll start with about one milligram for men, sometimes a half a milligram, and it's not that, uh, that much estrogen. And generally, they, it's tolerated very well. Uh, and if they do get some symptoms, then we ease back on it and, you know, and, and monitor it the way we, we, you know, monitor it, see how they feel. If we need to, we can add some, you know, some, uh, some dim or some other sort of supplement to help uh, the metabolism drive it the way we want to. And then, you know, if they are on a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hormone replacement, I'll do a metabol you know, a hormone metabolism study also. Usually, you know, there's some salivary tests or urine tests that'll look at the the metabolic pathway to see how they're metabolizing their hormones. And that can be helpful to see, you know, if they need supplements to, to guide the metabolism in the right way. Mm. Um, that makes so, sense. yeah, so that, that, that's how I would, you know, finish up with men. So then if, if we're looking at cardiovascular health, like if somebody's coming to me and they're middle-aged and they don't have a family history, then, and they've never looked at their cholesterol, then I'll do that. I'll, I'll do a, a thorough cholesterol panel. If, they're already, if they've already looked at that and, and their primary care physician has said, okay, your cholesterol is good, I will ask for the numbers, uh, the, the data, make sure, verify it. And if it's okay, I don't necessarily need to, to do anything in their middle ages um, unless, unless they want me to dig into it further, unless there's a need to. If somebody comes to me that's a little older, uh, and they've already passed that the the, the, the phase of menopause, I, or if they're older men, um, I will still recommend starting uh, starting the, uh, the the hormones uh, because there's no age is too late. Yeah. The the caveat is that for women, the the more they the longer years they the more years they have in menopause, the more their risk starts to equal men of the same age. So once they lose their est the protect protective effect of estrogen, they start to develop plaque. Adding estrogen at higher doses can cause the uh, plaque to become unstable in the first year, and that's it. So that's why in studies we see the first year has ma maybe higher levels of uh, heart attacks, angina, acute coronary syndrome. And that's because they've been getting really high doses of estrogen, and that causes, yeah, and so those plaque get a little bit weaker and more prone to rupturing. So what we do is we start out low or we start with cream, get them used to it and then increase it slowly. And then, and, and generally one milligram to two milligrams is still within a range that it doesn't cause the plaque to get too unstable. So start with maybe one milligram, half a milligram for the first year. And then as they, uh, their system has time to really stabilize and then the next year we'll, you know, we increase it. But we look at those inflammatory markers at the same time and measure them to see where they're going. And the one that I'm looking at in particular is called myeloperoxidase. Ah, yes, yes. Because there's an oxidative stress marker, right? Which a lot of doctors don't look at. So it's NPO for short, if you're asking your doctor for that. Um, now, I know I can get specialty panels with that. Can that be done at a traditional lab like our hospitals or Quest or LabCorp, that NPO, or is that just specialty? No, that's actually a quest has. So Cleveland Heart Labs was doing yep. that before. Mm -hmm. Then they got up, but they got bought out by Quest and they maintain their, they're still set, they still maintain themselves as a separate entity, but you can get uh, MPO or all these markers through Quest anywhere now. Is that the cardio IQ panel that they have? Is that what I'm thinking? I think so, yeah. They have a, they have a, it's, it's, uh, used to be called an NMR. I think it's called yeah. a, a smart lipid panel with particle sizes. And that's the one I use. 
This is great. Yeah, me too. So I have a question because this is again as a clinician and you're the expert here for me to learn too. The LP little a, I, I have the understanding that there's a much bigger genetic component of that. And for me, it's a little bit harder to budge, but it sounds like you think that, uh, or the hormones could potentially, is there anything else? So LP little a, Mm -hmm. uh, patients who have that high, obviously there is a big genetic piece. What else could we do for that, that um, you might be able to shed some light on it? Mm -hmm. There's, uh, well, estrogen has some, is shown to be, to be effective with LP little a to help reduce some of that. Um, you know, LP little a is, is a little bit of a conundrum. There are some folks that have elevated LP little a that don't have premature coronary disease. Excellent. So, um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have, you know, you're going to get coronary disease. So I think that, uh, that, that there's, so that's a caveat that should be said, but it should be taken seriously because that's the minority instead of the right. most patients, but estrogen helps. And then, you know, we start looking at, you know, there's other potential options. Um, there's some peptides that may be able to help with uh, LP little a, or at least help, uh, the, the, the utilization of fat more effectively. Um, and, you know, when we talk about peptides, we're talking about protein molecules that help the body do the things that it normally does, but more efficiently. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of peptides. So we could talk a little bit about that if you'd like. Yeah. Um, I use some of the, the main ones that are super common for raising HGA, a human growth hormone. Mm -hmm. um, some other ones that help immune system, help natural yeah. cells. Um, a lot of the ones that help repair and recovery. So mm -hmm. injuries, tendons. And for me, the thing that I need to know as a clinician is, uh, are any of these uh, causing rapid cell division and growth? Because those are the ones you usually want to use for a specific amount of time, you know, mm -hmm. with not overdoing them, because of course they could could lead unrestrained growth of cells, which could lead to cancer. Um, yeah. But I feel like with the types of ways we're using them, like either Monday through Friday off on the weekend or for six mm -hmm. months off, um, tell me uh, a little bit about, I know like CJC Pimorland is one of our classic favorites. Um, yeah. Is that, that's one that you would probably use for six months and then take a break. Any caveats on using that? The, the only, I mean, the, there's no real caveat. I, I guess I, I will say one caveat about uh, cell division. I don't really know of any study specifically that looks at what growth hormone does to tumor tissue. This is just, this is just theoretical. And the only study that we know that actually looked at what growth hormone did was uh, it was tesamorelin in AIDS patients that had Kaposi sarcoma, and that actually reduced the, the Kaposi sarcoma load. So you know, so even that is is to be questioned. You know, we don't necessarily. I mean, this is, we're, we're we're stimulating our body's ability to do what it normally does, and giving growth hormone is is what we made a lot of when we were young. When we were young, we could fight off a lot of disease. We could fight off cancer. You know, so it makes sense that this may be able to help fight those things off in adulthood too. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I've seen just such impressive results with peptides. I know like you as well. Mm -hmm. um, any new and upcoming ones that we might want to be thinking about or, or um, on the radar? Yeah, um, right. there, there's, a, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of what's on the, on the radar is looking at uh, cellular senescence and mitochondrial efficiency. Like that seems, five and one of the <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah everything seems to be pointing to the to to that sort of link the bridge between the nucleus and the mitochondria and the rest of the and how that communicates with the rest of the cell so all of, there's a whole list of mitochondrial peptides there's MOS MOTSC there's five amino one MQ 
there's the Fox that you were talking about, Fox 04. You know, these are, these are peptides that are designed to, uh, and then there's also something called humanin, which is really interesting. Uh, that, you know, these, all these are designed to bring health back to mitochondria and make them into these really uh, powerful energy producing organelles and then help it communicate with the rest of the body and the nucleus effectively and efficiently. And, and there's so many ways it's being done. I mean, uh, one of them looks at the, the bioelectric uh, current in the inner membrane and, and fix it, you know, puts these peptides into place to make it even more bioelectrically, make the, the, the potential more bioelectrically, you know, stronger. And, you know, so if you imagine that, you know, as if, if we're going to close our eyes and, and visualize this, I mean, that's, that's a really powerful sort of uh, image of something that's electrically moving along the surface of our organelles. Um, I guess that's just the artist to me talking, but. <laughs> no, I love it because yeah. I feel like I, it's just so fascinating to see like the potential of some of these yeah. therapies are really powerful. Um, mm -hmm. I have a young woman who has a, I, I kind of a, a unknown cause of cardiomyopathy mm -hmm. and with peptides, we've seen some massive reversal, yeah. the 40 something year old dentist, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm assuming you've seen some of the same kinds of things. He's really at the, at the level, the heart is probably the biggest purveyor of mitochondria and energy. Yeah. Heart mm -hmm. brain, right? So if Absolutely. We can improve, um, so I'm assuming with heart kinds of conditions, you're looking at mitochondrial peptides because that's where the power is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How exciting that we have mm -hmm. these things. So um, I'm getting a few questions on the Facebook on um, uh, fish oil and mm -hmm. thoughts because that went all different ways. I know yeah. I use it. What's your thoughts on EPA, DHA, benefits for brain and heart? Do you still use them? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, I don't use supplements unless uh, unless they're really indicated. And DHA, EPA is definitely one of those that I, I do recommend still. It helps triglycerides uh, at high doses. Important, uh, fund, you know, uh, fundamental building blocks for brain health. Important for um, for our, our hormones because we use the fats to make our hormones. Uh, and EPA and DHA are great. Uh, I do would say I would like to make a caveat that. Uh, omega-6s are also important too, you know, and the linoleic acid is, is, uh, is also, you know, an anti-inflammatory omega-6 and we need that to help membrane health. So it's, uh, you know, just, so omega-3 is definitely very important, very, you know, and, and, and very healthy. Uh, don't forget the omega-6s and a great source is uh, evening primrose. You know, you can get that pretty, get that pure and it can help augment the uh, omega-3s. Oh, I think there's more, especially if you have eczema or some of the skin conditions, mm -hmm. asthma, eczema, atopic stuff, typically GLA is, is uh, deficient. Um, and it's interesting, arachidonic acid is a metabolite of um, an inflammatory pathway of fatty acids. And so we don't want that high. Sometimes fish oil can bring that down. Have yeah. you ever seen arachidonic acid low? And have, is there anything you would do if it was too low um, related to fish oil? Or I don't know if you've ever come across that. I haven't really seen it that much. I mean, most of the, because most of the time, you know, fish oil is something that's so, so ubiquitous right now. And, yeah. and, and most people take it, they take it as a sort of just as a reflex. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, what I see is the, the other, other way, other, other end where arachidonic acid is often too yeah. high and it suppresses the, uh, the use of the omega-6s and, uh, and the ability of the omega-6s to, to leak, to get into the cell and try and, and improve membrane health. Awesome. 
Um, so what are some of the, uh, any upcoming things that you've seen that you feel like might be really game changing in cardiovascular disease, especially in the realm of integrative and functional medicine and yeah. tips or tricks? Well, I, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm still working on uh, getting people to want to take the estrogen, you know, and, uh, and then the, the trick is to combine that with, um, with, uh, uh, with the peptides. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a lot of peptides that, that help, um, they help insulin sensitivity and they also help, um, they, they also help the lean body mass. And so, you know, there's one that is used by, um, by big pharma, it's called Victoza. And used to be, it used to be available as a, by via compounding pharmacists. It's not anymore, but in patients with diabetes, or even if we can get it approved, it, you don't have to have diabetes. And it's a great it's a great medication to use because it can actually help uh, vascular health significantly. It can uh, reduce intimal medial thickening, which is, you know, when, when we get older and we have, if, if we have hypertension or we have aged uh, vascular, uh, vascular anatomy, it gets thicker and getting thicker is, is a sign where it gets stiffer and then promotes hypertension. Well, um, well, Victoza or liraglutide is one of the few medications that's actually shown that it can reduce intimal medial thickness uh, and, and, um, and help, help, um, help them, you know, the insulin metabolism very well. So, so by reduce, it, it can reduce the, uh, the effect of hypertension and, uh, re, you know, improve vascular health. So I think being able to add that and use that more liberally is, uh, something that I would, that is, um, something that I'm trying to do when I can with, with patients. It's, it's difficult because it's an injectable and it's an expensive medication. I love that you're talking about liraglutide. I wrote an article a few months ago on liraglutide. It's a GLP-1 agonist. And mm -hmm. what I wrote about was, yeah, it's for diabetes, but if you look at the studies on lung function, heart yeah. function, uh, diabetic uh, reversal, um, uh, insulin resistance, et cetera, et cetera, there's so many different areas. Mm -hmm. It acts on so many different tissues. So it's very pleiotrophic in its nature mm -hmm. and um, how powerful. And you talk about cell, uh, cell senilence. Um, same thing. There's some studies with liraglutide and cell senilence, which basically mm -hmm. means the cells that are programmed to die start to, you know, get back to life and give you some, you know, energy and traction. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan. And for me, my population is a lot of uh, environmental toxicity and mold related illness. Mm -hmm. And what I see there, men and women, they will get toxic mold exposure and then go right into a very severe leptin resistance. So they'll mm -hmm. have 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds of weight gain, no change in activity. They're not yeah. quite diabetic, or they'll even start to become metabolically resistant and insulin resistance because of the toxic exposure. Mm -hmm and they're healthy weight and they're exercising and they're eating right and they can't lose weight. So that weight resistant, that weight loss resistance, that leptin resistance is just a sign that metabolically they've got some dysfunction. And it's because those toxins hit the leptin receptors on the cells and basically block the ability to burn fat. So I found liraglutide to be a huge reversal agent for that. Um, but like you said, the difficulty is it's uh, very expensive and we used to be able to compound it. Um, now to get it approved is really difficult. So yeah. that's always my rate limiting factor in using it is if the patient can afford it or if we can find a way to get it. But I yeah. love it. And I feel like I, I love using it off label for these other indications because it really does work. And with peptides, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of valid on label uses. I mean, it's indicated yeah. for, for weight loss. It is and for obesity it, and for diabetes yeah. and for, um, yeah. So that's exciting. Well, um, mm -hmm.
Any last uh, bits of uh, tips or advice or so uh, if patients uh, are looking for a more um, integrative approach, you are taking new patients, right? I am. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And where's your office out? Is it Denver? It's uh, south of Denver in Englewood. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. What is, uh, where can people find you? What's your website? And Yeah, my website is uh, interlinkedmd.com. So that's I-N-T-E-R-L-I-N-K-E-D-M-D.com. Awesome. And I'm going to make sure you guys that we have those links posted so you can jump right on there, interlinkedmd.com. Um, thank you so much for your time today. It's so fun to talk to you about yeah. uh, peptides and heart health and all of these things. Any other bits of just basic advice for the patient who has heart disease, who's struggling even with their conventional doctor, where could they get started? What would you recommend if they maybe don't have someone like you yet in their corner? Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the very basic that they should be doing? The basic things they can do are uh, start with, well, make sure they're taking their omega-3 fatty acids, uh, coenzyme Q10, and, uh, and magnesium. Those are the three, the three big ones that, uh, there's, those are the three big ones I would recommend for heart health. Uh, and then start, make sure you're, you're walking after dinner, after, you know, get up and walk around, move around a little bit. You don't have to be, you don't have to be going to a gym, but, but uh, improving how your body metabolizes your food right after you eat is one of the most important things you can do. So, um, so after you eat, do not sit down and watch TV. If you got a yard, go outside, do some yard work. If you, have, if you can go for a walk, then go for a walk. But that's probably the first most important thing you can do because that will help your body metabolize the sugar better. And then it'll give you a little bit of you know, time to get out. It'll give you a little bit of fitness too. But um, movement is so important. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. And I'm assuming then you don't want to do like the sumo wrestlers and eat and then go straight to bed either, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Not if, unless your job depends on it. Their job yeah. depends on it. Then, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. It has been a pleasure to have you. We'll have to do this Absolutely. again. And yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome.